Chapters twenty nine and thirty of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter twenty nine. The Rhine Blanche. I cannot forbear a brief reflection upon the scene ending the last chapter. The retanning of the young culprits, although significant of the imperfect discipline of a French man of war, may also be considered as in some measure characteristic of the nation. In an American or English ship, a boy, when flogged, is either lashed to the breech of a gun, or brought right up to the gratings, the same way the men are. But as a general rule, he is never punished beyond his strength. You seldom or never draw a cry from the young rogue. He bites his tongue, and stands up to it like a hero. If practicable, which is not always the case, he makes a point of smiling under the operation, and so far from his companions taking any compassion on him, they always make merry over his misfortunes. Should he turn baby and cry, they are pretty sure to give him afterwards a sly pounding in some dark corner. This tough training produces its legitimate results. Footnote. I do not wish to be understood as applauding the flogging system practiced in men of war. As long, however, as navies are needed, there is no substitute for it. War being the greatest of evils, all its accessories necessarily partake of the same character. And this is about all that can be said in defense of flogging. End footnote. The boy becomes in time a thoroughbred tar, equally ready to strip and take a dozen on board his own ship, or, cutlass in hand, dash pell-mell on board the enemies. Whereas the young Frenchman, as all the world knows, makes but an indifferent seaman. And though, for the most part, he fights well enough, somehow or other he seldom fights well enough to beat. How few sea battles have the French ever won! But more, how few ships have they ever carried by the board, that true criterion of naval courage! but not a word against French bravery. There is plenty of it, but not of the right sort. A Yankee's, or an Englishman's, is the downright Waterloo game. The French fight better on land, and not being essentially a maritime people, they ought to stay there. The best of shipwrights, they are no sailors. And this carries me back to the Rhine Blanche, as noble a specimen of what wood and iron can make as ever floated. She was a new ship, the present her maiden cruise. The greatest pains having been taken in her construction, she was accounted the crack craft in the French navy. She is one of the heavy sixty-gun frigates now in vogue all over the world, and which we Yankees were the first to introduce. In action, these are the most murderous vessels ever launched. The model of the Rhine Blanche has all that warlike comeliness only to be seen in a fine fighting ship. Still, there is a good deal of French flummery about her. Brass plates and other gugas stuck on all over, like baubles on a handsome woman. Among other things, she carries a stern gallery resting on the uplifted hands of two caryatides larger than life. You step out upon this from the Commodore's cabin. To behold the rich hangings and mirrors and mahogany within, one is almost prepared to see a bevy of ladies trip forth on the balcony for an airing. But come to tread the gun-deck, and all thoughts like these are put to flight. 
such batteries of thunderbolt hurlers, with a sixty-eight pounder or two thrown in as make-weights. On the spar deck also are carronades of enormous caliber. Recently built, this vessel, of course, had the benefit of the latest improvements. I was quite amazed to see on what high principles of art some exceedingly simple things were done. But your gall is scientific about everything. What other people accomplish by a few hard knocks, he delights in achieving by a complex arrangement of the pulley, lever, and screw. What demi-semi-quavers in a French air! In exchanging naval courtesies, I have known a French band play Yankee Doodle with such a string of variations that no one but a pretty cute Yankee could tell what they were at. In the French Navy they have no Marines. Their men, taking turns at carrying the musket, are sailors one moment and soldiers the next. A fellow running aloft in his line frock today, tomorrow stands sentry at the admiral's cabin door. This is fatal to anything like proper sailor pride. To make a man a seaman, he should be put to no other duty. Indeed, a thorough tar is unfit for anything else. And what is more, this fact is the best evidence of his being a true sailor. On board the Rhine Blanche, they did not have enough to eat. And what they did have was not of the right sort. Instead of letting the sailors file their teeth against the rim of a hard sea-biscuit, they baked their bread daily in pitiful little rolls. Then they had no grog. As a substitute, they drugged the poor fellows with a thin sour wine, the juice of a few grapes, perhaps, to a pint of the juice of water facets. Moreover, the sailors asked for meat, and they gave them soup, a rascally substitute, as they well knew. Ever since leaving home, they had been on short allowance. At the present time, those belonging to the boats, and thus getting an occasional opportunity to run ashore, frequently sold their rations of bread to some less fortunate shipmate for sixfold its real value. Another thing tending to promote dissatisfaction among the crew was their having such a devil of a fellow for a captain. He was one of those horrid naval bores, a great disciplinarian. In port, he kept them constantly exercising yards and sails and maneuvering with the boats and at sea they were forever at quarters, running in and out the enormous guns as if their arms were made for nothing else. Then there was the admiral aboard also, and, no doubt, he, too, had a paternal eye over them. In the ordinary routine of duty, we could not but be struck with the listless, slovenly behavior of these men. There was nothing of the national vivacity in their movements nothing of the quick precision perceptible on the deck of a thoroughly disciplined armed vessel. All this, however, when we came to know the reason, was no matter of surprise. Three-fourths of them were pressed men. Some old merchant sailors had been seized the very day they landed from distant voyages, while the landsmen, of whom there were many, had been driven down from the country in herds and so sent to sea. At the time, I was quite amazed to hear of press-gangs in a day of comparative peace, but the anomaly is accounted for by the fact that, of late, the French have been building up a great military marine to take the place of that which Nelson gave to the waves of the sea at Trafalgar. But it is to be hoped that they are not building their ships for the people across the channel to take. In case of a war, 
what a fluttering of French ensigns there would be. Though I say the French are no sailors, I am far from seeking to underrate them as a people. They are an ingenious and right gallant nation, and, as an American, I take pride in asserting it. Chapter 30. They Take Us Ashore. What Happened There? Five days and nights, if I remember right, we were aboard the frigate. On the afternoon of the fifth, we were told that the next morning she sailed for Valparaiso. Rejoiced at this, we prayed for a speedy passage. But, as it turned out, the consul had no idea of letting us off so easily. To our no small surprise, an officer came along toward night and ordered us out of irons. Being then mustered in the gangway, we were escorted into a cutter alongside and pulled ashore. Accosted by Wilson as we struck the beach, he delivered us up to a numerous guard of natives, who at once conducted us to a house nearby. Here we were made to sit down under a shade without, and the consul and two elderly European residents passed by us and entered. After some delay, during which we were much diverted by the hilarious good nature of our guard, one of our number was called out for, followed by an order for him to enter the house alone. On returning a moment after, he told us we had little to encounter. It had simply been asked whether he still continued of the same mind. On replying yes, something was put down upon a piece of paper, and he was waved outside. All being summoned in rotation, my own turn came at last. Within, Wilson and his two friends were seated magisterially at a table, an inkstand, a pen, and a sheet of paper, lending quite a business-like air to the apartment. These three gentlemen, being arrayed in coats and pantaloons, looked respectable, at least in a country where complete suits of garments were so seldom met with. One present essayed a solemn aspect, but having a short neck and a full face, only made out to look stupid. It was this individual who condescended to take a paternal interest in myself. After declaring my resolution with respect to the ship unalterable, I was proceeding to withdraw, in compliance with a sign from the consul, when the stranger turned round to him, saying, Wait a minute, if you please, Mr. Wilson. Let me talk to that youth. Come here, my young friend. I'm extremely sorry to see you associated with these bad men. Do you know what it will end in? Oh, that's the lad that wrote the round robin, interposed the consul. He and that rascally doctor are at the bottom of the whole affair. Go outside, sir. I retired as from the presence of royalty, backing out with many bows. The evident prejudice of Wilson against both the doctor and myself was by no means inexplicable. A man of any education before the mast is always looked upon with dislike by his captain, and, never mind how peaceable he may be, should any disturbance arise, from his intellectual superiority, he is deemed to exert an underhand influence against the officers. Little as I had seen of Captain Guy, the few glances cast upon me after being on board a week or so were sufficient to reveal his enmity, a feeling quickened by my undisguised companionship with Long Ghost, whom he both feared and cordially hated. Guy's relations with the consul readily explains the latter's hostility. The examination over, Wilson and his friends advanced to the doorway. 
when the former, assuming a severe expression, pronounced our perverseness infatuation in the extreme. Nor was there any hope left. Our last chance for pardon was gone. Even were we to become contrite and crave permission to return to duty, it would not now be permitted. Oh, get along with your gammon, counsellor, exclaimed Black Dan, absolutely indignant that his understanding should be thus insulted. Quite enraged, Wilson bade him hold his peace, and then, summoning a fat old native to his side, addressed him in Tahitian, giving directions for leading us away to a place of safe keeping. Hereupon, being marshalled in order, with the old man at our head, we were put in motion with loud shouts along a fine pathway, running far on through wide groves of the coconut and breadfruit. The rest of our escort trotted on beside us in a high good humor, jabbering broken English, and in a hundred ways giving us to understand that Wilson was no favorite of theirs, and that we were prime good fellows for holding out as we did. They seemed to know our whole history. The scenery around was delightful. The tropical day was fast drawing to a close, and from where we were, the sun looked like a vast red fire burning in the woodlands, its rays falling aslant through the endless ranks of trees, and every leaf fringed with flame. Escaped from the confined decks of the frigate, the air breathed spices to us. Streams were heard flowing, green boughs were rocking, and far inland, all sunset flushed, rose the still steep peaks of the island. As we proceeded, I was more and more struck by the picturesqueness of the wide-shaded road. In several places, durable bridges of wood were thrown over large watercourses. Others were spanned by a single arch of stone. In any part of the road, three horsemen might have ridden abreast. This beautiful avenue, by far the best thing which civilization has done for the island, is called by foreigners the Broom Road though for what reason I do not know. Originally planned for the convenience of the missionaries journeying from one station to another, it almost completely encompasses the larger peninsula, skirting for a distance of at least sixty miles along the low, fertile lands bordering the sea. But on the side next Tayarbu, or the lesser peninsula, it sweeps through a narrow, secluded valley, and thus crosses the island in that direction. The uninhabited interior, being almost impenetrable from the densely wooded glens, frightful precipices, and sharp mountain ridges absolutely inaccessible, is but little known, even to the natives themselves. And so, instead of striking directly across from one village to another, they follow the broom road round and round. Footnote. Concerning the singular ignorance of the natives respecting their own country, it may be here observed that a considerable inland lake, Waiheria by name, is known to exist, although their accounts of it strangely vary. Some told me it had no bottom, no outlet, and no inlet. Others, that it fed all the streams on the island. A sailor of my acquaintance said that he once visited this marvelous lake as one of an exploring party from an English sloop of war. It was found to be a great curiosity very small, deep, and green, a choice well of water bottled up among the mountains, and abounding with delicious fish. End footnote. It was by no means, however, altogether travelled on foot, horses being now quite plentiful. 
they were introduced from Chile, and, possessing all the gaiety, fleetness, and docility of the Spanish breed, are admirably adapted to the tastes of the higher classes, who as equestrians have become very expert. The missionaries and chiefs never think of journeying except in the saddle, and at all hours of the day you see the latter galloping along at full speed. Like the Sandwich Islanders, they ride like Pawnee loops. For miles and miles I have traveled the broom road, and never wearied of the continual change of scenery. But wherever it leads you, whether through level woods, across grassy glens, or over hills waving with palms, the bright blue sea on one side, and the green mountain pinnacles on the other, are always in sight. End of chapters 29 and 30 Recording by Tricia G.